Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Scott Latchett, partner and president of research and strategy at PSFK. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from good old LA, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from uh, good old NYC. Good old NYC. You know, just before I joined this podcast, I did a panel discussion for NYC Jewelry Week. I don't suppose you've been keeping up with any of the virtual or physical events happening this week. And I just did a big conversation around watches, which they've never had before in Jewelry Week. So it was good. It went well and it was pretty chatty. Again, I'm a big fan of sort of as informal as you can get. Anyway, there's a lot going on. There's a lot to talk about. And our next guest is, he's not a jewelry person, not a watch person, but he's someone who I've followed for many years. His name is Scott Latchett. He's a partner at PSFK, also the president of research and strategy there. PSFK is an organization that was founded in 2006. When I lived in New York in those years, I met its founder, Piers Fox, when they were just getting off the ground and was always fascinated at what they did. Scott, recently I had a conversation with him for a piece I did for the New York Times, and he described himself as a near futurist. So they're really looking at emerging trends and so much of their focus lately, and we can talk to Scott about this, is the future of retail. I just sat through a future of retail virtual event that they did a couple of weeks ago, I think, but there was so much interesting conversation around, you know, everything, the future of content, the future of digitalization, omni-channel, everything you could think about. And Scott really knows so much about what we should be thinking about. So we wanted to invite him on and ask him a few questions pointedly, especially as they pertain to the luxury universe and the world of jewelry retail. So welcome, Scott. It's so nice to have you. Hello, Victoria. Hello, Rob. Very nice to be here and excited for our conversation today. Fantastic. Well, I think you have one of those titles, or at least an informal title that always pricks people's ears, which is a futurist or a trend consultant. Tell us a little bit about your background and then what your career path was to landing at PSFK and specializing in near futurism. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think if you look at my early career, it probably reads like several chapters from Studs Terkel's seminal work, Working, where he interviewed a bunch of blue collar folks about all the various jobs that they did in their point of view. I took a very roundabout path to get to where I am today, running a moving company for many years out in the Bay Area, working in kitchens, both sort of high and low end, but always having that sort of writing background it was the thing that kind of fueled me. And so ultimately, when I arrived in New York City and was looking to make a career change, I wound up with an opportunity to work with PSFK. At the time, we had a public-facing content site. Now, all that great content is behind a paywall. But I wound up joining and helping write a number of the pieces that were being published on the site. And ultimately, at that time, there was a budding consultancy that was happening. And that was kind of my entree into this world of trends, if you will. And it turns out that it requires a lot of the skills that I think I enjoy and am passionate about, the sort of deep dive research side of things, the writing side of things, as well as just kind of being able to look at things and and find where emerging patterns are starting to take shape, and then ultimately kind of help describe what that could potentially mean sort of now and moving forward. 
So when you look at these trends, what kind of information do you take in? Do you kind of read everything? Like what are kind of your big information sources when you look at these kind of big macro trends? Typically, Rob, to answer your question, I think we would say that we generally look at more what we would frame as micro trends. They tend to be a little bit faster moving. For us, they have anywhere from a one to sort of five year horizon, depending on, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is fueled by technology. But then also, there's certainly a consumer sort of adoption side of things as well. That said, we do also look at the sort of slower moving, depending on how you're defining things, mega and sort of macro shifts. Ultimately, the way that we kind of approach the sort of process is, yes, I am reading constantly across a variety of sources, you know, anything from mainstream news media, from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, etc., to what would have kind of counted as blogs back in the day. I don't know. I guess we just call them digital publications now. Typically, the way that I'm consuming information is through newsletters. I want to say I subscribe to probably a decent 60 or 70, and I'm not necessarily deep reading on a daily basis, but I'm definitely scanning them. For us, we then have our own system of kind of taking that information and recategorizing it around topics that we're interested in tracking so that then when we're posed with a question, whether that's from one of our members, or a consulting client, we have a base of knowledge that we can draw from. And really what we do is start to pull in, we would say, emerging signals. So whether it's a new business model, a new piece of technology, a new way that brands are doing something interesting within the digital space, we'll start to pull those things in that we think relate to a brief or a question that we're trying to answer. And then we start to cluster similar ideas together, which ultimately help us define trends. We're also looking at what's happening within the consumer marketplace as well. And then we're not a quantitative agency by any means, but because we're doing all of this research, we're finding supporting stats that help to talk about things like market size or adoption in the marketplace, or say X number of consumers believe X, Y, or Z to be true. And then as well, there's a lot of other great experts out there who are constantly leaving amazing quotes about where they see the future heading. And so to have their insights to back up the things that we're talking about as well is certainly helpful in that context. You know, like I said, I'd followed PSFK for a number of years, but had you always had this future of retail? You seem to have a lot of dedicated content around that. Is that your kind of sole focus at this point is retail and, and these emerging trends and technologies? And in terms of that, I guess, tell us a little bit about the conferences you've been putting together. I think for us as a business, I mean, I'd like to think that we're the only game in town, but that's ultimately not the case. And so I think for us, focusing on retail, customer experience, and brand experience was really a way to kind of focus the way that we approach the marketplace and people who would potentially read us or engage us in various sort of activities. We certainly look beyond that today, but really retail is a focus of ours. About 10 years ago, or maybe a little bit longer, we decided to sort of publish on behalf of PSFK and sort of sell those reports. That business model has changed a little bit over the years, but the first report that we had done was a perspective on the future of retail. And that really has become a calling card for us. And I think is the most important report that we put out every year in terms of, you know, our business. Ultimately, we had a member and former client once compare us to the Mary Meeker report in the sense that this is the Mary Meeker report of retail, which is very flattering. And for us, the retail report is, is important too, because we also use it for the
the basis of a number of events. We did a virtual event recently around our latest retail report, which is a speculative look at the future of retail in 20 years time. So it's the future of retail 2042. And we take a lot of what we're seeing happening in the market today, and we make some bets on what that could ultimately mean for the future in 20 years time. And I'd like to think that we have a decent track record there. But when we put on these events, what's nice is that PSFK can kind of frame the conversation. And then by virtue of the fact that we've done all this great research, we identify companies and interesting people that are already doing progressive things in the space. And then we bring them up on stage with us, whether it's in person or virtual, and get their point of view on these topics. You know, during COVID, it's all been in a virtual context, although in January, we will be running a multi-day sort of retail innovation week conference that will happen in person as well, which is exciting to think that we're finally getting to that stage as well. That's right in New York, right? Exactly. Yes. It's phenomenal. I mean, you do pull in some pretty interesting people. I must say, I was taking notes furiously during this last conference, and you had all kinds of interesting businesses, interesting analysts and thinkers. So kudos to you, because a lot of that stuff is fascinating. I wonder what you thought were the highlights of this particular conference as you look to 2042. What were some of the things that stood out to you? Within the context of this report, we've teased out what we call these sort of very, you know, sort of speculative futures, one being this idea of the meta mall, which ultimately is driven by all of the conversations that are certainly happening about the metaverse, but not specifically looking at only what's happening in a virtual context, but thinking about what happens when there's an easily accessible layer of information that we can utilize within the context of the physical world, which obviously has very big ramifications within the context of physical retail. We talk about this idea of the omni consumer. And for me, what's really interesting interesting is I think we're at this sort of interesting moment in time where you have the sort of influencer culture kind of maturing, but then coming up alongside of that is this notion that essentially anyone now has access to an audience and can reach that audience in, in various ways and begin selling to them. And so, you know, alongside of that, you have this idea of the creator economy, if you will. And so moving from selling influence and content to now new sort of mechanisms and platforms are being put in place where these folks can now begin to manufacture their own products and become their own brands, essentially. And then the third idea that we talk about is what we call the on-demand brand. And ultimately, this is getting closer to consumers, both in terms of proximity, so things like delivery and manufacturing and what that ultimately means. And certainly, we've seen the challenges that the, the COVID pandemic has brought to the supply chain and the sort of explosion of digital commerce and the challenges for logistics and all of those things. And it'll be interesting to see what the holidays are like with that as the sort of backdrop. But then also thinking about the ways that brands begin to kind of integrate themselves into the lives of consumers in very different ways, that it's not just a sale happens and then you wash your hands of it, but brands attempting to find more ways to integrate themselves into the lives of consumers and add value in meaningful ways. I guess my big question is that we've seen all these changes from COVID, people staying home and people doing more digital shopping. And do you think that when we get to back to somewhat of a more of a semblance of normal, do you think that shopping patterns will get back to normal or is some of this permanent? 
I'm still very much in favor of physical retail, and I think it's not going to go away. I think it is absolutely changing, and what is going away is sort of bad physical retail, if you will. I think some of the things that I feel pretty strongly will remain permanent is the fact that, A, in the midst of the pandemic, out of necessity, you had people like my parents who were in their 70s who, for the first time, were downloading apps and sort of doing their grocery shopping on online. And there's a certain utility and value and convenience associated with that. And so certain parts of that behavior will remain. I think as a result of that, what I see happening is that more and more people are using digital as a component regardless of how they are shopping. So whether it's in support of a physical journey, they're doing a bunch of research up front, they're checking inventory availability, they're doing price comparisons, all of those different things. Maybe they're buying online and picking up in store. So I think that digital component is going to remain. I think there's an expectation that if I'm going to be going into a store, that there's got to be something special about it. I think what digital does very well is utility. What it doesn't do great yet, although it's trying to certainly get better at, is the sort of emotional connection. I guess emotional and social that physical does really well. And so I think physical retail needs to really double down on things like experiences, things like service, things like human connection to really differentiate itself. The final thing that I will say is that physical now plays a big role in supporting that digital journey. And so one of the big things that kind of accelerated during COVID is the sort of associate in a store who is serving a customer in an online setting, whether through text messaging or through live streaming services and things of that nature. And I think what we're starting to see is a lot of businesses beginning to sort of embrace that. Despite all of the changes that have happened as a result of COVID and the sort of spike in e-commerce as a result, it's still well less than 50%. I think the highest it reached was maybe 30% in the US, and I expect that to kind of back down a little bit likely. And so physical retail remains super essential as a part of this. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. You know, you mentioned a few of the things earlier when you were recapping some of the main themes you explored at your Future of Retail 2042 conference. And I thought to myself, a lot of these things are probably terrifying, at least for our audience, which, you know, is is fairly traditional, fairly conservative world of jewelry retail, especially the ideas of the creator economy and omni-consumers and, you know, retailers in our world have long been gatekeepers to the esoteric, opaque world of jewelry. They're the ones who take the customer's hand and walk them through. And I wonder, how you might advise retailers who are pretty traditional in how they should start thinking or what things they might start exploring to prepare for that future because it's probably pretty scary for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of this stuff is scary for me as well. I think the first thing I would say is embrace the change. I think, you know, it's sort of inevitable what is happening, especially if I think about the expertise that is sort of built up in a family business that has been dealing in jewelry, for example, for many, many years. But it, it is intimidating, frankly. And I think there's a way to kind of demystify some of that process by turning that into an opportunity to help educate and create content 
content that's going to make that experience feel less mysterious and less anxiety inducing, if you will, for people, especially for younger consumers who probably think of, you know, the luxury world as perhaps aspirational, but out of reach in many ways. And so bringing them along in that journey. The second thing I would say is, we're at this sort of interesting moment where because of social media, you know, whether we're talking about the big ones like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, TikTok, et cetera, but then the sort of up and comers like Discord or Reddit is you have this ability to get hyper niche in terms of the types of audiences that you're able to kind of tap into there. And so, you know, there are uh, amazing experts that, um, you know, get really sort of into some of these things like watches, for example, and the brands that are doing a really good job are sort of seeing those audiences as not competition, but as potential partners to kind of get the word out and sort of utilize in different ways or to at least begin to have conversations with. I think with any of these things, there's nothing wrong with experimenting. There's nothing wrong with getting it wrong. I think you need to have an opinion on these sites to figure out what's ultimately going to work who's the audience you're trying to reach? What are they actually using? And then especially from a small business point of view, when I think about, you know, the one piece of technology or tool that I would say to adopt, it's always chat or text messaging, because it's the way that we all communicate with each other in today's world. It's the way that I find out what my mom is up to, as well as, you know, communicate with my partner or any of my friends. And it's got its own level of intimacy. It's very one-to-one in that context. You know, a lot of people think of Instagram as a communication platform, less so a network for sharing imagery. I think the imagery piece is probably the least interesting part of Instagram for a lot of people these days. And so I think all of those platforms are super powerful to create these relationships and be that sort of front door into an experience with your brand. And it's very humanizing in that way. You know, we hear a lot about quote unquote retail theater and a retail experience. Is there any stores you think are really doing a great job of that? I think if we look at some of the beauty industry in general, I think they do a really good job of kind of welcoming people in. And they're very technology forward in terms of the types of things that they're adopting. A retailer like Camp bills itself as a family experience store, but ultimately it is a toy store that is sort of expanding its footprint, is doing amazing things with creating these immersive sort of experiences that families can go in and have together. And guess what? You're inside the store and your kids are probably going to want to buy something when when they're there as well, which is really incredible. They even do interesting things where as a member, you can get free babysitting once a month and get to have a date night with your partner. And so that stuff is really exciting to me as well, that whole kind of membership-based retail. I think for me, as I think about the jewelry industry and what's such a challenge is that obviously you have a lot of high-end items that are behind glass. And so that interaction feels very fraught from the beginning. And so there's nothing sort of playful about it. It's like very serious. And, you know, certainly some of that is necessary because of security, but I think buying a piece of jewelry for a loved one shouldn't feel like you're negotiating for a used car or something like that. And, you know, forgive me if that's a unfair sort of comparison, but I think there are similarly anxiety inducing processes in some ways because you just can't come in and sort of self-serve. And so I think those are opportunities that from a naive point of view, I sort of see as things that I think are potential ways to kind of change the experience. 
no, I think you hit it. And it's really helpful that you're coming at this from a different perspective, because I think those of us in, entrenched and ingrained in this world stop remembering how daunting it can be for a first-time buyer or somebody who's about to spend a ton of money on a gift for a loved one. So this is feels like a very topical conversation. And the most topical part may be this concept of the metaverse. You briefly mentioned it with the Metal Mall earlier. Obviously, we've all heard the news about Facebook slash Meta. And, you know, we've talked a little bit in the past here on this podcast and in our digital pages about NFTs, digital luxury goods, but not that much. Again, it's a, it's a, our audience tends to be pretty traditional. This isn't all that mainstream yet, but should we all be jumping aboard this digital luxury good train? I mean, are we going to all be expecting to sell our gold bracelets and on Roblox somehow? Is this coming sooner than we think? What's your take on what role the metaverse will play in how it intersects with the world of luxury? I just saw this statistic yesterday. Morgan Stanley says it could become a $50 billion market, the metaverse that is. I don't think that necessarily means that we need to sort of not look where we're jumping and just kind of shift all of our attention directly there. These virtual worlds that you described, the Robloxes, the Fortnites, the metas of the world, if you will, where people will have embodied avatars of themselves and they will interact within these spaces to socialize, to work, and likely to shop. I do think that that will happen. At the same time, I don't think that it will replace the living, breathing sort of human interactions that, you know, we're, we're accustomed to. You know, NFTs is an interesting one because I think the most interesting version of an NFT to me, at least now, is less as an investable product that is going to sort of raise in value over time and more of as a sign of ownership slash membership, which then potentially grants you interesting perks within the context of of a brand or a retailer that you are interacting with. It's a new version of way of thinking about loyalty, perhaps, with a traceable good that you belong in a specific group, if you will, and that grants you certain privileges. The other thing that I think is quite interesting is, again, you know, if you think about the digital version of a physical good that you purchase, and so that notion that you're buying something in either case and you're getting the opposite version of it. You know, one of the things that I know we talked about in the past, Victoria, was this sort of idea of a digital twin, which could be simply just that. But I think as we sort of move forward into the sort of sophistication of what that could mean, is it ultimately becomes a way of a brand creating a touch point between a consumer and the physical good that they own, being able to use that as a channel to communicate with those individuals in some sort of meaningful way. Potentially, if we're thinking about something like a watch with moving parts, if that watch has sensors in it, then being able to track the the way that it's keeping time and potentially a small piece is no longer functioning in the way that it should. And so signifying that it's time to bring that watch in for a repair, if you will. You know, aside from the novelty of this kind of stuff, you know, we've all spent like a year basically like staring at computers and staring at screens and you know at least for me you know I'm starting to read more physical books and kind of trying to get away from staring at screens all the time and just trying to see people more in person is there kind of like a reaction to this or is this kind of like this inevitable kind of tide that's, that's going 
I do think there is some inevitability to this, particularly if you're quite young. You know, the idea of friends and socialization happens in a totally different way now. You know, you could consider somebody a close friend who you've never met in real life. Once you sort of move into this kind of digital realm that suddenly traditional design constraints and certain things no longer hold, you're using resources in a different way. You're allowing sort of expression in a very different way, which I think is interesting. I don't know if it's for me necessarily, but you know, I'm also about to be 46 and I'm not 15. But I also think that it would be irresponsible as a business to sort of turn a blind eye to some of the things that are happening, even in the most simplistic sense, like I mentioned, things like social media, things like chat, like those are those are already firmly entrenched behaviors that are happening. And some of the other stuff is going to come along a little bit later and, you know, might not upend the business necessarily. But I think, you know, are still interesting things to consider as you try to tap into these newer audiences that are kind of behaving and sort of interacting in, in a very different way. My God, Scott, thank you for the crystal ball you've just given all of us. There's a lot to think about here and some of it thrilling, some of it terrifying, and I'm pretty excited. So thank you very much. We really enjoyed having you. Yes, thank you. Awesome. Well, Victoria, Rob, this was great. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.